Welcome to the Awe and Wonder podcast. I'm Sarah Kinsella. And I'm Brenda Del Monte. And today we're joined by Dr. Daniel Scott. And Daniel is a pro- assistant professor who works in the Communication Sciences Disorders Program and is um, teaches classes on cultural responsiveness, which is the topic of this series of our podcast. So we're so excited to have her join us today. Daniel, do you, did I get that right? Is is that okay? Thank you. You want to introduce yeah. yourself a little bit and just tell us a little bit more. Sure. So I'm Dr. Danny Scott, and I'm an assistant professor at MSU Mankato. Mankato is a pretty rural area, about an hour and a half outside of the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, and St. Paul. And so this is my third year as a professor um, there, and I teach all of the courses that I teach are um, related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So cultural responsiveness, cultural humility, and then a couple of um, DEI courses like DEI and SOP education settings, as well as DEI seminar. Interesting. What is DEI for? Um, Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. Okay. It's been a while since we've been in grad school, so (laughs) these classes- All the terms, they're always changing. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, well, so with the ASHA requirement, they put the new ASHA requirement for two hours of professional development under diversity, equity, and inclusion. So okay. under that umbrella, you could do something specifically related to that framework or cultural responsiveness or cultural humility or cultural competency. So kind of all of those things umbrella under that larger framework. Just for terminology, what's the difference? Let's start off by asking the question, what's the difference between cultural responsiveness, cultural competency, cultural sensitivity, cultural humility, I think is what you said. Yes. Oh, that's such a good question. Okay. So Sorry, this um, was not on the prep question. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel I like, feel we like need- I um I feel like I distinguish them a lot with my students. And what I'll do, I think I want to explain it in the context of how we've planned our curriculum at MSU. Um, mm-hmm. so I love our sequence. Um, we developed this DEI curriculum in 2021. So after the murder of George Floyd, they really thought, okay, we are gonna have to think about what are we doing as far as actually thinking about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so our first course in the sequence is in the sequence is an undergraduate course and it's cultural humility. And I think that is the perfect place to start because it's more about a personal orientation to othering, um, other centering. So really thinking about your clients. So I think it's the journey starts with who am I? What is my culture? And acknowledging yourself as a cultural being. And I think cultural competency, that's not really like a part of it. Um, and so that makes it different. And then this um, framework comes out of healthcare and it's really going beyond cultural competency. So cultural competency is about skill sets and knowledge related to working with different cultures, which is fine. But it is a bare minimum starting point. But cultural humility is saying that I'm going to commit to lifelong learning. And that learning can be in the form of professional development, but also that learning needs to be I am going to continuously learn from my client. As much as we build trust, then I can keep learning more. And so establishing that rapport to continuously learn from your client, but also it's about critical 
critical self-reflection on your biases. And I think that's something that's not included in cultural competency because you have to look personally and say, well, what is actually hindering me from building this relationship with my client? It could be your blind spots, your implicit biases, or just depending on your experiences, your beliefs, your value systems, they could conflict. And then um, when you're trying to send to your client, you can't because you can't even see their point of view. So I love that about culture of humility. It's so personal. But then on the other side, it's also thinking about systems. And so one of the other pillars of culture of humility is like thinking about how to build mutually beneficial partnerships. So not just partnerships that benefit the clinician, um, the institution, but also who benefits the client, and then finally holding institutions accountable. So really thinking about systemic inequity and isms and how you could be complicit and what things you could be doing. Um, so I just love the framework of cultural humility because I think it's so all-encompassing and it's definitely where our profession needs to move. And right. then um, I like to think about cultural humility and cultural responsiveness as Cultural humility is how to orient and how to do therapy, but cultural responsiveness is what do I need to do? And I like to look at cultural responsiveness, which is our second course in the sequence, to think about like this toolkit of all these different things that you could possibly do to make your assessments more inclusive and less biased, to make your treatment more inclusive and less biased. So then, you know, and cultural responsiveness, it's more about doing this work and it's very, very practical. Oh, I love that. I, and we're definitely going to want to ask you a little bit more about that toolkit. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Um, You know, we didn't, I didn't have this in grad school. I'm sure many listeners also didn't have this in undergrad or grad school have cultural humility, especially. Um, we did talk a lot about culturally um, diverse, you know, linguistically and culturally diverse students, mm -hmm. but not in this way. Um, you're an SLP, right? Did yeah. you did you have any courses like this when you were in school? Or? No, um, which is why I'm just so that I'm in the position to teach essentially what I wish I had, but I didn't. And so, mm -hmm. you know, definitely when I was in graduate school around 10 years ago, um, mm -hmm. I, it was all about like cultural, cultural and linguistic diversity, which is fine. I still use mm -hmm. that term. I use that term in my dissertation, but I kind of think it's othering because it's like, learn about those diverse people. And it's from a place of like, well, I'm not, but you know, if I were to ever meet a client like that, this is what I do. And that's not right. really, everyone is diverse in some way. So we have to acknowledge like this consistent othering that we do in our field. And so I like that we're kind of moving away um, from that. But when I was in grad school, I think I had one course and it wasn't even a full course. It was like a half a course. It was like half of it was on social issues. And then the mm. other half was something else. And even when I started teaching, the class was called multicultural issues. And I think that's problematic. Like, is it really an issue? Like why, why do we say issues? Why right. we, you know what I mean? And so um, I didn't have this at all. And I think that it's so, um, it's so needed um, in graduate education today. You know, our, the field may be slowly changing in diversity if you think about our professional makeup very slowly, but it is growing. Um, but the populations we serve 
are growing quickly, very quickly in terms of cultural and linguistic diversity. And so I just love that um, we're moving in this direction. I hope we continue to do so. Yes. Will you tell us any data or experiences you have around um, underserved communities? Hmm. Well, I think all of my experience as an SLP, um, I worked in Title I schools with underserved communities. So I was trying to think back on my populations. And I worked in Atlanta for about a year and a half in two different school districts. And then I worked in Texas for five years um, in two different school districts. And in those school districts, um, the majority of students were um, from lower income backgrounds and um, some of them even living in poverty. I've worked with children who were homeless. Um, I've worked, especially in Texas, I worked with children who maybe their parents were undocumented um, and just having those um horrific experiences of their parents maybe being taken away. Um, also, my second year in Houston was Hurricane Harvey, and that was very um, devastating in Houston. And just seeing like, I had never seen the effects of a natural disaster, especially on a community that is already very much underserved. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a unique experience. And then what I loved most about working in Houston was that the district was so diverse. So there were so many different languages. Um, in fact, I remember like there might have been maybe two white students at my elementary school. And like, I remember seeing one girl in the hallway and I'm like, hey, because it was just so I've never seen her before. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then um, I think most of the languages we had um, a lot of Spanish speakers, even our principal was Mexican. Um, our assistant principal was black. We had a lot of um, diverse teachers and diverse um, even SLPs. Wow. Um, and so I think the main languages at my school were like uh, Spanish, Vietnamese, and probably Somali, I would say were like the top three. Yeah. And then, of course, a lot of students spoke African-American English, even like Vietnamese kids spoke African-American English. So just seeing how um, the communities mix together, I love that. That was like my favorite part of working in Houston. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. What you said about. So I have a question about that, though, because. We know that um, our standardized tests and our standardized data, it's not been normative on uh, a diverse population. So just diving in deep, just right off the bat, the the idea around possibly over-identified yet still underserved, you, can you talk, speak to that? Absolutely. I think that's one of our biggest threats to equity in our field, like the over dependence on standardized assessments, even though there's tons of research that says it's biased, we shouldn't be doing this, we should actually be doing something else called dynamic assessment and lots of other things. Um, I just wish that those things weren't looked at as less than because I even remember when I was working in the schools and we were trying to get away from this, but it just felt so normalized, like saying formal assessment and informal assessment. And we would say that a language sample is an informal assessment, but a standardized assessment is a formal assessment. Right. So then even the way you look at it is like a standardized is just this gold standard. You have to do this. This is what looks good. And then do the other stuff on the side. When really, when you are working with 
um, culturally and linguistically diverse populations who were never included in those norm samples, you should not be centering a standardized assessment. Now, I understand we have so much red tape, especially if you work in private practice, they make you provide a score. I think in my school district, we were trying to move away from this, but like, no, you can't make us provide a score. You need to encourage us to do ethical assessments. And if we're going to do that, we can't provide scores. So, you know, even in my cultural responsiveness class, responsiveness class, I'm talking about, okay, let's say you work somewhere and you have to use a standardized assessment. How can you use it? Well, you can modify it because it wasn't standardized on that population. So modify it and then talk about it in a qualitative way. Don't report the scores. Then maybe take a subtest, but then do dynamic assessment to show that, hey, they didn't do this well on the subtest, but if I taught them and actually gave them an explicit teaching period and then retested, then they were able to understand the directions and do better. So we talk a lot about how do we get around this centering of standardized assessments so that we are actually providing ethical um, testing experiences for all of our clients. I love that. That's so practical for, you know, SLPs coming into the field because you're not saying this isn't going to happen, you know, yeah. it's perfect. And it's like, here, here's what you can actually do. And, you know, when Brenda and I and a lot of our listeners are working with students who use augmentative alternative communication, and that's exactly what needs to happen there too, right? There isn't a standardized test that's mm -hmm. perfect for all of these students. So um, I think this really applies. To but you know, Sarah, really I think it's interesting because I think it is more accept. We are more acceptable to say you can't really use a standardized assessment on someone who is nonverbal and using an AAC device. Yeah. But we can't seem to wrap our mind around, hey, you can't use this assessment. This person is an African-American English speaker. Um, yeah. they, they are in this community, da, da 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 So it's not this, we don't see it the same way, but it is literally yeah. the same thing. We can see right. very easily, hey, this assessment is not going to work. This is not appropriate. But then we don't see it the same way when we're talking about linguistic diversity. And I think it just comes from having to acknowledge the inherent bias within, within standardized assessments. But you don't know that unless you actually study the history of standardized assessments and where that comes from. And when you understand that foundationally it is rooted in racism and capitalism and ableism, then we're able to say, oh, these tests were never made for the success of these populations. Therefore, we shouldn't be using them. So that's why I love to, you know, when we have these conversations, we have to talk about the root of the testing and what it really means and what it was set up to do and how these systems have been very much pervasive and we're being complicit if we don't actually learn that history. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. And we, you know, we're going to kind of ask you this at the end, kind of where we can learn more, but do you have resources specifically of where people can learn more about that? If they, if that. There's an article. Um, I was like, I printed it out. I was like, I want to take a bath in it. That's what I tell my students when I really <laughs> like an article. Um, I know the first author is Nair. It came out in last year. Okay. No, this year is 2024. Oh my. So it might've came out in 2023. That's like the first article I can think of because I just love that it gave such a clear 
history of standardized assessment and then talking about like those isms like racism and capitalism and ableism. Um, I love that article and we read it right before we talk about assessment and my cultural responsiveness um, class. So that is one article I can be sure Great. to send it y'all's way if you want to post yeah. it, you know, share. That's like um, great. a great reference. But then also the textbook that I use, and I'm not super big on textbooks just because my experience in graduate school was like, I use them and I never want to see them again because mm -hmm. what was um, there is a textbook that I love. It is by Dr. Heider and Dr. Um, Salas Provence, and it is a culturally responsive practices textbook, and it is excellent. Okay, great. Thank you. We will, get, we will get more information from you on those and post them with this podcast because I think people would be would love those resources. When yeah. I think about doing AAC evaluations, you are so correct that um, it is it is widely accepted that we are going to go in, we are going to um, meet the student where they're at. We're going to go with strength based assessments and look at what they can do and call everything communication that is actually communication all the way down to body language, right? Because they're nonverbal. And we do trials of devices and what, which, you know, that, and glean what their receptive language skills is from that, what they're, where they're at with their expressive language. And we're not, we're not holding them to a, a particular ML, MLU or a verb conjugation or any of the things that the standardized speech tests are, are doing. And it's widely accepted, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, when we think about why we don't, um, why we don't, why we, you're so right that those language samples get labeled as informal and then it is less than, and that is just wrong. And, and, and you know, after you talk about it for a while, you kind of can't believe we're still doing it. But then, <laughs> but then, you know, it requires two standard deviations below a mean to get the services, to get the medication, to get, to get the insurance, to pay for the thing, like the system itself mm -hmm. widely. So then there's like how much of it, how much of just um, jumping through the hoops to get the services is being complicit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you, your example is exactly why we are now talking about the diversity, equity, and inclusion framework. Because if all the SLPs got to together and had a cultural responsiveness party, and we like set a pledge that we're going to all be culturally responsive, there are still systems that are going to get in our way that will hinder us from actually doing that. So we yeah. have to talk about systems, equity, before we, and if we do those right things as far as like honoring diversity and inclusion, but if we don't address the the equity issues in our field, then we're never going to move forward. So it really has to be a very holistic approach. While I'm talking to my students about these are some things you need to do to get around this rule that we have, I'm going to talk about this is how you advocate so that we don't have to do these things. Or this mm -hmm. is work at a place where they actually acknowledge this and they are saying, no, we are not requiring our SOPs to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it has to be very holistic um, for us to move forward. And I, I do see a way forward. I do have a lot of hope um, for our field, but I would just love to see more of a cohesion when we're thinking about like what diversity, equity, and inclusion means and um, not using terms interchangeable that aren't really interchangeable. Right. 
in some ways you would think that we should we should be the leaders in this field because um communication in general should not be standardized mm -hmm. i mean just in general i i don't know why we've why we ever went down this road of, of standardizing the way people communicate <laughs> I mean, well, if you think so about the history personal. of our field, I have an idea. <laughs> I, I think yep. if you really, you're like, oh, like speech correctionist. And if you think about where we started, I get where we are now. And I'm grateful that some of us don't even know that history. So we're like, sure. why is this happening? You know what I mean? Like, I'm right. like, not like carrying that with us. But then also when we really think about how this field started, we're going to start to see those layers as to why these things, because of course, in this day and age, we're like, communication is so diverse and culture and all these different mm -hmm. things that we're seeing. I mean, it makes sense not to try to put everything in a box because everything doesn't go in a box. Right. But if you look at our field is not very old. Our field is what, less than a hundred years old, you yeah. know? So I think um, if you look back at that history, it really points a picture as to why we have some of the challenges that we're trying to undo today. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. I love that you're making us think about taking that on and exploring that and, mm -hmm. you know, not just say, okay, that's a thing, right? Like dig into that, do that research, learn about the history. Um, I think that's, that's really important. So the answer is not a better standardized test. That I mean, I think that's the other. No, thing. it's not. It but people not. think it is. They make people they keep do. making more. Let's translate this one that already doesn't really work. Let's just yeah, exactly. This is <laughs> it's not like oh well. Let's just make this test. Let's just put mm -hmm. this test in Vietnamese and we're good. That is not yeah. what we're talking about here. Yes. Um. So it's like I think if we continue to say, well, how can we work within the current system to make it more um to make it less biased that's the wrong framework to begin with because we're still missing the point of that that the standardization of this in in, in itself is biased mm -hmm. right and mm -hmm. that's such so so important to distinguish the differences between saying let's try to make the current system better and let's actually let's actually change make the changes required systematically yes. Yeah. And that's that's essentially the, the definition of ju justice, which is how can you make equity sustainable? And there is only so much less bias. Let's make it less. Let's change it. There's only so much changing you can do. And if you've done all the changing, sometimes it has to be a real conversation of maybe this doesn't work and maybe mm -hmm. we shouldn't be doing this and mm -hmm. maybe we should do something different. Mm hmm. Yeah. How is it that that um, this these populations that are not been, have not been normed in the standardized test are over identified yet underserved? Mm -hmm. Oh, that I think for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think it comes down to the overrepresentation is very clearly um, the way that we assess and the way that we. Um, diagnose is obviously based on these a lot of standardized assessments and things right. that were never normed on the population. So we are essentially setting them up to be overrepresented. Um, I right. also think it comes down to our professional makeup very much impacts this. If you think of our professional makeup um, and the lack of diversity in that, then there is going to be implicit bias that is carried. There is going to be a lack of knowledge. And I'm not saying that 
oh, a white SLP could never learn about African-American English. But I am saying that I am a Black SLP who speaks African-American English, and I can feel more than I can put language to. So sometimes I'm just able to see something, and I'm like, oh, I know what this is, and I didn't have to learn it in grad school. Mm -hmm. So. Right. I think also your lived experiences are just so important. And I wish we would acknowledge that as that is an extra layer of expertise when you are working with someone that you have a shared lived experience. And maybe it's not language or dialect. Maybe it's background. Maybe it's something else. Um, but I think that does play a role. And we have to acknowledge that the more we diversify our field and start to take down some of those barriers for entrance into our field, because there's a lot of them, then mm -hmm. maybe we can start to see um, those changes. But I think the answer is just really complex. There's so many, so many things, but I would say the top two would just be the assessments we use and also like our makeup. Mm -hmm. I love that perspective about the shared experiences. Um, yeah. So um, Dr. Scott, you mentioned in the very beginning about some tools that you talk to students about having in their toolkit. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things when we start talking, I guess I'll talk about like assessment and treatment. Um, when I'm talking about assessment, we do have to have very real conversations about standardized assessments. Although I always start my conversation as like, let's just have a burning party and let's just put them in a circle and just burn them all and never use them. <laughs> but then that's not very realistic. We are going to have to use them. So we need to know how to use them. And I always say the way that you even think about a standardized assessment. So let's take a vocabulary assessment, a standardized vocabulary assessment, which I personally would never use, but I know people use them. You need to at least acknowledge that that standardized assessment will never tell you someone's vocabulary or the extent to which they can learn words. It is going to tell you what words have they been exposed to, period. Uh -huh. That's it. And then you say, if you really want to know someone's ability as far as how do they learn, what does that look like? then you're gonna do a dynamic assessment to look at their vocabulary, um, such as like fast mapping, where you're exposing them to words, you're teaching them, and you're actually learning their process of learning new words. So really just shifting our understanding of what is a standardized assessment. And please don't think it's gonna tell you something that it's in fact not. Um, and then we have a lot of conversations about dynamic assessment and it is not a physical object. You don't go in your closet and pull out a dynamic assessment. It is a way of thinking. It is more of a framework of saying, hey, this is the model that we use. Psychologists have been using it forever. And <laughs> where you actually, you know, test someone, but then you have this extensive teaching and then you retest them and you're looking at how they learn. It is more of a way of seeing and a system and not necessarily like something you physically pull out. Um, and then I like to even talk about non-linguistic processing um, tools that we can use, such as like one of my favorite is um, uh, non-word repetition. I know the Leaders Project website, um, which is Dr. Kate Crowley out of Teachers College. She has so many free resources on that website, whether it's non-word right. repetition 
or um, the slam cards that are in all these different languages. Um, so really exposing them to a lot of tools and teaching them these are not like less than tools. You need to center these. And also it's not just for your diverse clients. We're all diverse and everyone deserves a fair assessment. Um, and so really thinking about those things as far as assessment goes and um, a great tool would be ethnographic interviewing. So never assessing someone you don't know and you haven't done the work to build rapport and trust. And your ethnographic interview is gonna be that gateway into an assessment that is less biased. And so really spending time on what that interview looks like and how do you do it and how do you build that rapport and not centering yourself and what is your goal for learning um, from the ethnographic interview? And maybe not just talking about, so tell me about your aphasia. Like someone wants to sit there and talk about something that's really hard for them. Maybe actually get to know them as a person. And if they came yeah. with their spouse, maybe talking to them about what that relationship looks like and what are some challenges as far as communication. So like getting to know a human being before you center a diagnosis. Um, and then I think as far as, um, treatment goals, I love to think about inclusion when I'm thinking about treatment. So are your clients feeling that you made this treatment for them, that you thought of them? Mm -hmm. And that comes with collaboration. Did you just look at an assessment and say, oh, these are the weaknesses. This is what we're going to do. You never talk to them about what they think their weaknesses are or what they mm -hmm. want to work on. So really having a lot of collaboration when it comes to materials. Um, and also we spend a good amount of time working, um, thinking about inclusive books and how to even evaluate books for representation and high quality and um, utilizing literacy as a center for like inclusive um, treatment and especially working with kids. Oh, I love that. There's so much, <laughs> there's so, so many, much. so many great things that you said. Yeah. One, um, one thing that I love that kind of stood out is that you said, you know, use these practices, like those resources you're talking about with everyone and kind of like, don't assume you, you know something, right? Or because we're all diverse, but also um, if we say, well, I'm gonna use it with them and not them, that is assuming something about their their cultural or whatever it is. Um, I love that idea. And I love that there are resources out there. And then I, I, I really appreciate the ethnographic interview. I think if folks haven't heard about that or they haven't, um, that's an area to, to learn more about. I think that's really important. And I know that, I mean, that that is a skill that actually can just help with your life in general, right? Just talking mm -hmm. to other people in general. And I remember learning about that in school. And one thing that um, stood out that I always remember is, like you said, I didn't think about it in the way that you talked about, like um, the othering kind of, but I remember that they would say, you know, if someone says, and then um, because I had this paralysis or whatever, then, and I fell down and, and, and I, we might say, oh, that must've been so hard, but it was like, you had to take that away. And just, because we don't know if that's their experience, that that was so hard. Maybe they want to keep going and talk about something else about it. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I think that's a really great practice to, that someone could start using tomorrow. Yes. You know, I do AAC evaluations primarily in the homes, and there's such an advantage of um, 
it's so humbling to be invited into anyone's home, to be honest, yeah. that's its own privilege. And then you're walking into someone's, your student's life, you know, you're walking into that. I, I'm, I work with children. So walking into their living dynamic, their, um, their just everything, the people that are important to them are there. Um, and you learn so much just by, just by opening your, your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your ears, you know what I'm saying? You're just like mm -hmm. taking in that, that this is their life. And I feel like um, that's thing. That's something that was really challenging for me when I worked in schools. It's like, oh my gosh, this IEP isn't till May. I'm going to work with this kid and not even know their people till then. Like, I might meet this family once. So I remember just reaching out at the beginning of the year every year and calling every single one of them because I'm like, I do not know how to know your kid just by talking to a non-verbal or very not very verbal four-year-old like that's not enough information no. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like, the other thing is is that system is the is the um the uh, the IEP I, I don't even meet the family till I've already been working with the child and I, and and I don't even realize how many assumptions I've made mm -hmm. around this student until I meet the family and I go oh okay that explains a lot or wow i i read that whole thing wrong or whatever i think i just think that we i think the fan it's for children the interview needs to include the parents because that's a huge part of it and we don't really get to do that year after year after year, right and then slps change and they move schools and next thing you know we don't know our students very well and we've got mm -hmm. some um, you know, super duper flashcards. And it's like, that's not it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's not communication. That's not making human connection. That's not building trust. That's not actually knowing them. Mm -hmm. That's ticking boxes that we drilled this and we're working on an R and that's not what this is about. And so that's the other thing I think is like, I think when you work with children, but even when you work with adults, like involving the spouse and things like that, it's like the we're not really understanding who we're working with if we're if we're not seeing their um core group of people and how that interaction works you know i love that you talked about knowing and i think um my my so my doctorate is in psychology not speech and i'm so glad i have that background because i just love learning about people and um when i went into my doctorate I really wanted, I was fascinated with relationships and relationships. Why is it that like, as soon as you build a relationship with a client, it's like all doors open. Uh -huh. And I knew that it was something that was significant. I didn't know it had a name. I didn't know this was an area of study, but the area would be therapeutic relationships. And so that was uh -huh. my research area. And now I'm blessed to teach a whole class on building therapeutic relationships. But I always think about like, you don't need to make decisions about people you don't know. And I think about it like this. Um, I do watch the Kardashians. I've been watching since I was like 20. And <laughs> I could go up to Chloe if I saw her on the street and be like, hey, do you remember those blue boots you had on in season 14? It was episode three and you were <laughs> at this place. And she would look at me and say, girl, who are you? <laughs> I feel like I know her in my head. 
she does not know me. Mm -hmm. Knowing has to be mutual. And I think sometimes we think we know someone because we read a report about them that was written three years ago and we did this thing and we talked to the parents a couple of times. Knowing is a process. Building a therapeutic relationship is a process that has to be poured into and it has to be mutual. It has to be collaborative. And when you spend time building that relationship, that is when, that is the foundation for an assessment and for a treatment and for, you know, doing therapy in someone's home where they have to trust you and you have to have an emotional bond with that person. And so I think that the therapeutic relationship is something that we know we should be doing it, but we don't really critically think about it. And that's what I love about, in the class that I teach, um, it's called DEI Seminar, and it's a second year graduate course. And I just feel like it seals everything. Like you can have all the tools and you can know about the assessments, but if you don't build a relationship and actually think about your biases that hinder your ability to strong, to build a strong relationship, there's only so much progress you are going to make. And there's only right. so much treatment success you're going to have. And I think that knowing peace just really comes down to that. Do you know them and do they know you? Right. I love that. I didn't realize that was a term. I, I don't think I, mm-hmm. I use that. Um, it, is there, it, thinking about our biases and um, it, if we're not taking your class, <laughs> is there a way to kind of, <laughs> how do we start on this? You know, how, how do those of us who didn't have this awesome class. Um, what, what Do you have a starting point for? Yeah, you could read my dissertation. It's like 300 pages. I'm totally <laughs> kidding. No one in their life is going to read it. Um, <laughs> my parents won't even read it. Um, I think, you know, they're just... Um, one of the best things we need to do in our field is we need to stop depending on our field to give us all of the knowledge. And we're going to have to do some interdisciplinary work. And so although there are people in our field talking about therapeutic relationships, um, and even if you look at specific areas, like I would say there's a lot of research in our field, like stuttering and how important therapeutic relationships are. But actually look at some psychology literature. This comes from all the way back in Freud days. Um, but psychotherapy, they and um, they have been looking at this for quite some time. So even when I was um, doing my dissertation, there was so much literature from psychology that I pulled from and was able to apply and say, this could work for all helping professions and actually start to pull, um, you know, fields that have been doing this work so much longer than our very young field and just getting out of our like speech comfort zone and looking at other areas. And so um, even if you just do Google Scholar and type in therapeutic relationships, um, do like since 2020 now, we want to keep it current, Uh, but (laughs) you will find lots of literature, I promise you. And no, a lot of it won't be in our field, but it will definitely um, apply to our field. Okay. Well, and what comes to mind too is that, you know, it's really big right now to say that we want to be um, child directed, right? We're going we're gonna to follow the child's lead. What are they interested in, right? And it's like, why wouldn't we expand that to what are the family's communication goals for this student, mm-hmm. right? What is, what is the family's goals? Um, because we go in with our goal that they can, 
you know, follow a three-step direction or something, something ridiculous. And, and, and by the way, it's touch your foot, then touch your, like things that kids don't even want to do. Right. It's like, it still doesn't, still doesn't assess whether they can actually follow the direction. It just has, it just assesses if they're going to be compliant. Right. <laughs> that, right. Yeah. So it's like, good. again, what, what are we, what are we actually testing when we're doing any of this to begin with? But also like we, I think we, I think it's not a leap to, to think about child directed, but so why wouldn't we go, what's important for you? Because we know I'm going to work out with this kid in a group for 30 minutes a week and you're going to work with this kid the rest of your life. What are your goals and how mm-hmm. can I support you on that? Because you're actually going to be the one that fosters their communication skills way more than I am. And if I'm doing my own little on the island thing, um, I'm, we might end up reaching some arbitrary 80% goal and we might decide that we feel good about that but that's not that's not actually increasing communication skills that are that are functional that are meaningful and so it seems like even though we decide we're going to be child directed that's not enough it's no. like we need to be going what what does everyone who's in who's going to follow this child for the rest of their lives everyone that who lives with this child everyone who is working who is you know building relationships what are the where are the barriers here and where how can i help you and that is seems to be the biggest thing is like we aren't if we come in with our agenda then we aren't looking at how we can help them mm-hmm. we're looking at how can i do my job, I guess, if that, if that, if we, if we've even defined that as successful, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? So I feel like there's the, the, I feel like let's take that, that, that um, everyone's enthusiasm around child directed and go, let's call it what this is. We're doing child directed because we're doing something that's meaningful to that person. So why wouldn't we expand that? What is what is meaningful community? What does meaningful communication look like in your home? What do where are the barriers? When do you see um, breakdowns? And how can we? How can I build enough trust with your child to have them look at this in another way, or to increase their skills in a way that that that, that um, nobody likes to do things they're not good at? So you know we have to build trust to even challenge us child to think about things in a different way or communicate in different ways it seems like we take this child directed and blow it up like like let, let's let's go big or go such home a small, it's such a small piece and it makes me think about cultural humility because um a lot of times someone no not a lot of times the way we see the world that is our culture your culture is your way of living and so there's even research that shows that um I, one week in our DEI seminar class we look at perspectives of latina mothers and there was one article that i used and it talks about how the um a lot of in this particular study there were latina mothers and they were talking about their preschool teachers' expectations and um, Latina mothers' expectations. And the preschool teachers were like, I just want them to be academic ready and know their letters. And the mothers were like, I want my child to make friends and know their name and like talk about who they are. And it was very much social emotional was the goal. Right. And the teacher was all academic. And that is cultural because if you had culture humility and you really saw the collectivist culture that is represented, you would understand that community and for your child to be able to relate with other people is far more important than them individualistically making an A because they know 26 right. letters. You know what I mean? And I, I think we a lot of times take 
what we do and we want it to be colorblind and culture blind and we don't think oh i'm just going to treat them the way i would treat anyone i treat everyone the same that's so good literally don't treat everyone the same treat people how they need to be treated and you know speaking as a person of color i don't want to go to a therapist that doesn't acknowledge that i am black and this is a part of this is my culture it represents my language this is my belief system this is this you know i want them to get to know those parts of me if i were going to do therapy and i think we also have to think about yes you want things to be child directed and you want to think about the family family. But who is this family? Because the family represents a group. A family is not just the the people in the family, but you, right. there's foundationally, if we think about communities and right. cultures, then we see a family in this larger context. And I think that is going to help us know them on another level when we are really thinking about that. And I think that's where, you know, cultural humility like comes into play. Yeah, You know, when I think about training kids with significant physical disabilities, I work with significant physical disabilities, AAC, eye gaze, you know, almost all of my children are non-ambulatory. And um, those parents are like, my goal is my kid gets invited to a typical age, typical peer's birthday party. Like between now and sixth grade, if, if every, if anybody in his class actually knew his sense of humor, I promise you he'd be invited. And then the school IEP is just these, you know, facts. And and it's and it and you're right. It's under the guise of it's it's um, it we treating everyone the same. Everyone needs to know their letters. Here's their numbers. That now we're learning our states. Now we're learning our countries. Now we're learning our learning our right. And it's like that is not the communication goal of almost anyone. By the way. To, to be able to rattle off the states or to be able to write, right? So it's like, we, that that's again, part of the system. It's like, it's our job as the communication person to come in with those social emotional pieces and and to look at how that, that that's the purpose also of inclusion in, in with these kids that are being pulled out and separated is that we, we need to be looking at what is the motivation to increase your communication skills? I'll tell you right now, it's not history. You know what I'm saying? It's not It's not math. It's not the motivation for them to become more fluent on their AAC device is so that they can build relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we, I mean, so we need to be working towards that direction. And if we stick with these, like they know these verbs, they're combining verbs and nouns, they're, right? If we stick to some of these standardized norms of, of communication skills with with communication devices, we, we've missed the whole point of all of it. And then then we get refusal. Well, maybe, oh, yeah. it's, maybe it's this, maybe. No, no, it's because we've met, they're refusing because it's not meaningful. Exactly. They're refusing because it doesn't matter to them. And we think we're being fair. That's why I don't like that word. We think we're being fair if we do these things. Like, here's these things I learned in grad school. I'm just going to do this for everyone. No, that's equality. You know, Mark, thinking about MLK, yesterday was MLK Day. A lot of people think Martin Luther King stood for equality. He literally did not. He stood for equity. You know, if you were to go on a date and this man is talking about, we about to go to a dinner and a movie. And I'm like, I don't really want to go to a movie. I was thinking, you know, maybe we could do some axe throwing. I have a lot of anger. I want to get out. And he's like, no, because every um, first date, I go to dinner and a movie. I would say, sir, you need to have several seats because I'm not everybody. <laughs> and that makes sense. But we can't seem to, it's like, 
well, it has to be fair. Well, if we do this for one, we have to do it for the other. Well, mm -hmm. this is what I learned. What about the person sitting in front of you? I get what you learn, but sometimes what you learn, no, most of the time what you learn has to go in the back seat of the person sitting in front of you, getting to know them and knowing like their story, what's meaningful to them. Then you start to bring in some of those tips that you learned, but maybe sometimes it might take a lot of unlearning. Maybe you meet someone that's going to challenge you and you're like, Everything that I thought to do is not meaningful to them. Right. What mm -hmm. am I going to do? That's humbling. But we have to humble ourselves as clinicians. Right. And I don't think we do that enough or even acknowledge that it's so much, it's such a part of our job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like what you said before about, you know, it's, it's on us, right, as clinicians to learn about our students, our fam their families, their culture. But and and just them as individuals, right? But then also, like you said, pick up an article and read about Latino mothers, right? Do the work to learn about the the, the different cultures, and um, mm -hmm. and also explore your own biases and your own culture. Um, I think just listening to all of these ideas, you know, one, yes, I wish I could sit in your class, but two, I think gosh, I already have like a checklist in my head of what I'm going to be doing next, right? Like, okay, you've given us resources, you know, thinking about students I've worked with. And I don't, I haven't thought about that student's culture like I thought I had, right? Like mm -hmm. maybe I thought, oh, sure, I know. But no, I really do need to dive in and think about that. So I appreciate, um, I appreciate everything you've said and the the things that you've helped us think about and our listeners um you just have to have a mindset shift and you really are guiding people down that road and i love everything you've said so far it's amazing thank you thank you y'all yeah. are asking such wonderful questions i really appreciate it. i can tell just the thoughtfulness in the conversations that we're having i just think it's so meaningful and it's not surface level. And I want mm -hmm. our field to be able to have real conversations. You know, when you talked about like uh, looking at literature, literature can also be biased. And one of the best things SLPs can do after listening to this is to look at the people sitting in front of them mm -hmm. and get to know them better. Like there's a lot you can read about people, but culture of humility is about learning from, not just learning about, you know? So Honestly, we have so many different resources, including the clients that we serve, like right. really taking the time to say, well, I didn't do an ethnographic interview when I was supposed to, but I can do one now. I can right. really say, I'm going to spend time on a relationship and maybe I'm not going to take quantitative data every session. Maybe right. I realize that I don't really know this person and it's going to take me to have some sessions with qualitative data, but then I'm actually getting to know them and having some real conversation. And you can right. do that at any time. It's never too late. You only get to know someone in the beginning. No, you know, you get to know someone every session, every time you see them, you can start to think about building that rapport and what that looks like. Right. Well, as we are wrapping up, um, is there anything else you want us to know or any other stories you'd like to share? This has been so, such a good conversation. Thank you. I don't think so. I like to, I took notes and everything to prepare. I didn't even look at them today. So <laughs> I don't even think, 
<laughs> I feel like what we talked about was so meaningful. I don't even know of anything else I would want to add. I don't think. Yeah, you gave us a lot to think about and just I love the stories and how you really put it in a perspective of it was really practical. Like I'm going to be thinking about that Kardashian example. Um, yes, you'll you'll carry that with you. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard to keep the students of this generation engaged, but I just realized if I'm just being myself, it works. And, oh, and sure. it works because um students today are drawn to authenticity. They don't want you to be trying to put on like you know everything and you're not a real human being. And so I think also clinically that has worked for me too. So I mm -hmm. think, you know, if we are, for me, I love re reality TV. Maybe someone else could use a different example, but I think um, just being authentic to like who we are, we can make connections and we can actually teach from a place of, okay, I can connect with this person because they're being real, like who they, yes. who they actually are. <laughs> and you're putting yourself right. out there. Actually, right? mm -hmm. that's, that's the only thing you have to have in common is that you're both being genuine. Yeah, I don't have to come from your background to build trust with you. I just mm -hmm. have to know that you're being authentic and so am I. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where we have to start, right? And then with that authenticity means that I, I mean, you brought it out. It's like critically assess, you know what? I, I, I'm not going to dig my heels in and say that I don't have a bias around this. I'm going to, I'm going to go. Yeah. And guess what? Maybe, maybe you had a life experience that you earned that bias, right? Maybe, maybe you were treated poorly by a certain person and you've attributed that to a certain, um, I don't know, language, culture, socioeconomic, I don't even know, right? There's so many, so many ways you can be, have had a lived experience that you've attributed to a whole group of people, right? Like just, what if you just had the critical thinking to go, you know what, I'm coming in with this with, with some biases. So I, I, I'm just going to be honest with myself around that. I don't know that you say that out loud to the people, but I'm just saying, <laughs> saying, knowing that no one's walking in with this without bias. No, mm -hmm. no one's walking through life without bias. And so it doesn't make you um, a horrible person. What, what makes you a better person is knowing that you have those mm -hmm. and I'm going to listen. And I, and I want to give people the opportunity to shape my bias, to change my bias, to neutralize my bias, however it's going to go. But, but um, be open to, to the only way to be open for on, for ongoing learning is to understand your baseline. <laughs> yes. And shame is something that cannot coexist with learning. So if you feel like, oh my gosh, I have bias. I'm such a horrible person. I can't believe I did this. You will not be open to learning because you are now stuck with that shame and shame yeah. is crippling. So you have got to be able to take that shame off and say, you know what? I feel guilty because I realized I did something wrong. I did something wrong, but I am not wrong. And I am going to keep learning. I'm capable of learning. I'm going to do better next time. And I think that has to be your stance when you're even thinking about some of these topics. So even our listeners, if I said a whole bunch of topics and you're like, I don't know what, I don't know what this person's talking about. Okay. It's okay. But don't feel bad that you don't know. Just say, right. now I have more things that I would like to learn. And I know I'm capable of learning and mm -hmm. I want to learn so that I can do better for my clients and just for myself. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Scott. We loved having you on today. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you. Thank you so much.